Gracious God, we ask that you would be with us today, that you would speak to us today, and that even now you would be opening up our ears that we might hear you in new ways, opening up our eyes that we might see you in new ways, opening up our hearts and our minds and our lives that we might be changed by you. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you are at work, even in us, even today. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, There is an image that I want to begin with today as we move toward our passage and our topic for the day. Uh, Anyone who's ever lived and or worked in a skyscraper knows that tall buildings sway in the wind, even more so in a storm. And now, these are rarely dangerous. Engineers know that this is going to happen, and they account for it in their design work, but it can sure be uncomfortable for the people inside those buildings, especially if you're up high. Uh, sometimes these sways are inches. Sometimes we're talking feet. And in the really tall buildings, this may even be a couple of yards of sway. You should be getting a little bit nauseous even now. Uh, but when the engineers and architects were first designing the Citicorp Center in New York, they decided to do something about this. And so at the top of the 59th story of the building, they installed this machine, really, called a tuned mass damper. Uh, the machine, writes Joe Morgenstern in New Yorker magazine, was essentially a 410-ton block of concrete attached to huge springs floating on a film of oil. And so when the building swayed, the block's inertia worked to dampen the movement and calm tenants' queasy stomachs. These used to be hidden kind of things that no one cared about in buildings, but in one of the newer buildings, the Taipei 101, they put it on display between the 87th and 91st floor. And and the picture here is like a giant pendulum that's hanging inside of this building, and when the building starts to sway, the pendulum is out of sync and slowly calms the movement. There's a lot of science early in the morning, and I apologize for that, but I think this image will be helpful. So again, just picture it this way. There's a big storm blowing on a building, and instead of just swaying back and forth, and for a long time, there's this huge counterbalancing force working to slow the swing and calm the sway. Now, Here's where I find that image to be helpful. It's when we change our focus and our point of reference from tall buildings to our lives. And then the questions become, when a storm hits your life, when the winds begin to blow, what are the things in your life that quiet the winds and calm the waves and restore your life back towards order? To try and get at this another way, where do you turn? What do you do? And who do you call? Do you have anything or anyone in your life who can restore your life back towards peace? And then, maybe a much more interesting question is, if we were to ask this a different way, 
Are you that person for others? Notice I'm not asking, could you be that person for others? Because I think we all can think we can. But I'm asking, if I were to ask that question broadly, is someone putting your name on that list? Do you calm and restore order and bring a certain level of peace with you to others? And then, frankly, it's even more interesting if we expand this out. Are we that kind of people who calm the storms of life, or are we, like too many others, the ones who increase the chaos and amplify the unknown and pour gasoline on the fire? What if we were the kind of people who restored order and calm and quiet and peace to the chaotic world that we too often live in? What if that was part of our calling? What if that's who we are to be? While we think about that, let me back up a moment and remind us where we are and where we're going. In our current series, we are trying to understand what it means for us to be disciples. And too often we use that word interchangeably with Christian. I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple, it means the same thing. But there's nuance there and it's important. We began by recognizing that innately disciples are working to become more like their rabbis, their teachers, which is why disciples spend so much time with their teachers, so that they can learn what they know, so that they can model what they do, so that they can experience what they feel, so that they can emulate their rabbis better. That's the goal, to become just like your rabbi in every single possible way. And this is what we see in Jesus' disciples, listening and learning from Him, practicing what they see Him doing, working to know Him better so that they can become more like Him. And in the same way, we as modern disciples should be doing the same thing, listening and learning, practicing and praying, working and worshiping so that we can become more like Jesus, not just know about Him, not just know some of His teachings but that we might become more like Him. Of course, for that to happen, we need to spend more time with Him, pay more attention to Him, so that we can start to hear what He's actually teaching and model what He's actually doing and experience what He's actually feeling as we strive to become more like Him. Because, of course, the goal of the faith is not to be more Christian or to act more Christian or to make more Christians. The goal is discipleship becoming more like Jesus, acting more like Jesus, helping others be more oriented toward Jesus. We follow Him so that we can be transformed and so that we too can become more like Him. And so with that as kind of our background, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark 4, 35. While you're turning there, I'm going to remind you that we've seen uh, how we are to be more like Jesus in that we are to be following and bringing more people to Jesus. We're to be leading with compassion like Jesus. We're to be restoring people and helping them see Jesus better. Today we'll see something new. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. 
Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus... They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Amen. So before we get too far into this, let's recognize the extraordinary, miraculous nature of these encounters. Calming storms and casting out demons is not in most of our power or purview. And most of us would put these works well into the supernatural category, just a little bit out of reach for most of us. And, and I think that's okay. But granting that, remember, we are still working to become more like our rabbi, more like Jesus. And while calming storms and demons may remain a mystery for us, maybe we are still called to do the same kinds of works that we see Jesus doing here. 
And so I want us to take a look at what he's really doing more maybe on, on a basic level. Because it strikes me that among all the other things we've been talking about in this series, here we find Jesus bringing more calm and more peace and more quiet, restoring order into the chaos. And again, I'm not sure that it will be in our grasp to cast out demons and calm storms because we aren't Jesus, but as C.S. Lewis said, we are supposed to be aspiring to become little Jesuses. And if that's the case, maybe we can learn to work at calming smaller storms and quieting smaller disturbances and pacifying smaller disorders. In other words, just because we can't do the big things yet doesn't mean that we shouldn't be about these more basic things that Jesus is doing. And so let's look back through our passage and see what we can learn from our rabbi. And then let's spend a little bit of time trying to figure out what that might look like in our lives. And our passage begins at the end of a long day. Maybe not so coincidentally, that's also when storms are quick to form in some of our lives. Uh, Jesus and the disciples get into a boat. They head to the other side. After a long day, Jesus falls asleep in the stern of the boat. At some point along the way, a furious squall comes up with waves breaking over the side of the boat. Now, I haven't spent that much time in boats, but I know enough to know that when the water is coming over the sides, that's a bad sign. And you can kind of just picture this scene. There's 12 or so, 13 or so people in this boat, and the disciples are frantically trying to keep the boat afloat, fighting to keep it moving mostly in the right direction in the midst of the storm, panicking as they're bailing more and more water out of the boat. And let's remember, at least four of them were fishermen, so they would have known a little bit about what to do in a storm, namely, don't be out in the boat in the middle of one. But the rest of the disciples... They're not fishermen, and therefore probably not very comfortable in the boat in the calm, let alone in the midst of a storm at sea. And it's at this point that they finally turn to Jesus, with the storm fully upon them, with the water starting to swamp the boat without much hope left. They go and they wake up Jesus. Now, first things first. It's probably a bit too familiar that that is when they finally turn to Jesus. After exhausting themselves and every other option first, then they go try and ask Jesus for help. When there's quite literally nothing left for them to do, that's when they find Jesus. I wonder if things would have gone differently in this story if they had found Jesus earlier. That said, I can't really critique them that much because that's my strategy too often as well. I'm going to try my way first, and then my way second, and then my way third, and then my way fourth, and then my way fifth. And then when I'm out of my ways, that's normally when I turn to Jesus. I wonder if things would be different if we switched that order. So it's at this point they wake Jesus from his nap, and let's face it, no one likes being awoken from their nap. Luckily for them, it's Jesus. And so he doesn't just kick them out of the boat. Instead, he simply stands up and tells the wind to quiet down and the waves to be still, and 
everything becomes calm. Everything, but not everyone. Because the disciples are in awe of what just happened. And we probably should be too. Because even just an an initial reading of this story, if he can calm powerful storms like that, I wonder what he could calm in us, quiet in us. It's also worth noticing that that the calm comes as the disciples recognize and remember that Jesus is in the same predicament with them, in the boat with them, in the storm with them. Because, of course, we are prone to forget that too, especially when we're in a storm. When things are calm, sure, sure, Jesus is up in the front of the boat. He's asleep. That's what He does sometimes. But when we're in a storm, that's the last place we look. Maybe the real prayer of our story isn't that we always need to be taken out of the situation. It's to be more aware that Jesus is with us in the situation. Or, even better, if we can be closer to wherever He is. What if we could do a better job of noticing Him, remembering Him, even finding Him where we already are? But let's keep going. At some point, then, they make it to the other side. You'll note that this is the region of the Gerasenes, and so this was the other side. They had left the Jewish area, and they've gone to the Gentile area. This is the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's made up of a larger region called the Decapolis, a community of ten Greek cities, Greeks with their pagan gods and pagan practices. And so this was a less comfortable place for a person of the Jewish faith to be. Even even the setting that there's a large herd of pigs tells you that we're not in kosher anymore. And then, to make matters even worse and even stranger, they come across this man living in the tombs who who is feral. He's strong, he's wild, he's savage. He can't be controlled, he can't be calmed, he can't be composed. So, mentally, he's unstable. Uh, Physically, he's wearied and wounded. Socially, he's completely ostracized. Emotionally, he's angry and frightened. Spiritually, he is lost. And then Jesus shows up on the shore and calls the evil spirit out. When Jesus asks the spirit's name, it responds, Legion, for we are many. And just so we're getting the order of magnitude because I think this is helpful. A Roman legion was about 5,000 to 6,000 soldiers. Now, clearly, this isn't a Roman legion, but that might be the order of magnitude here. I always, when I've read this story in the past, I'm always like, there's like five or six or 12, or I don't know, we can't quite count them, but there's a bunch of them. There may be thousands, a legion. And the demons beg to be allowed to go into the large herd of pigs nearby, and Jesus allows it. Shortly thereafter, the Spirit drives the pigs into the lake, and 2,000 of them are drowned. Of course, the people tending those pigs would have been a little troubled by this whole scene, and so they run back to town to report. Unsurprisingly, the people of the town come out to see what happened, and when they come back, the part that is truly strange is that there is the wild man just sitting there with Jesus, 
dressed and in his right mind. And you have to kind of picture what a terror this guy would have been to the point where the town has tied him up with chains more than once. And now he's calm, and now he's settled, and now he's at peace. Which is why the reaction and the response again is just awe. It's also worth noting that this calm and peace comes as the man becomes more aware of and becomes more oriented towards Jesus. Of course, the odd twist at the end of the story comes as Jesus turns to go. Unsurprisingly, the man asks if he can follow, can I become one of your disciples? And Jesus says no, which again seems like a strange response from Jesus. Even stranger still, Jesus then commissions him to go out and tell of all that God has done for you. Jesus sends him to go out and share the very visible good news that he has experienced. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't train the guy. Jesus doesn't disciple the guy. Jesus doesn't test the guy. He just sends him out to share. And he's sending him out into a relatively hostile audience because these are the people who want Jesus to go in the first place. This is a completely pagan audience. And Jesus says, go and tell of God's mercy. And we don't get to it in our passage, but this, pa- this story gets even stranger still. Because in chapter 8 of Mark, Jesus then comes back to this very same region, the Decapolis. And when he comes back, there are crowds of people wanting to get close to him, wanting to learn from him, wanting to become more like him. In fact, this is where the feeding of the 4,000 takes place. There's the feeding of the 5,000, but then later there's the feeding of the 4,000. This is the place where the feeding of the 4,000 takes place, which makes it worth wondering, were the crowds all prepared for the returning of Jesus, all because of this one guy who shared good news of the mercy of God in his life, as evidenced by his newfound calm and peace, and quiet. Which brings us all the way back to us. The first way we understand all of this and read this and talk about this is simply to make sure, is Jesus that calming and controlling force in our lives? As we face the storms and the winds and the waves, could we do a better job of following after Him, looking toward Him, moving closer toward Him? Are our lives oriented towards Him or somewhere else? Or are we too focused on all the storms of life that we forget that He's with us in them? Do we allow Him to settle our fears and quiet our concerns and bring a deeper peace into our disordered and scattered lives. But then that harder question, are we becoming more like Him? And in this, can we also become the kind of people who bring His calming and His quieting and His restoring spirit to the chaos all around us? 
as we experience the hurry and busyness and stress of lives, and as others around us do as well, can we be the kind of people who look to Jesus and rely on Jesus for our assurance and our peace, but then because of that, ratchet down the chaos and concerns all around us? Can we be that kind of a people? Where I was, I was stressed before, but then I spent a little bit of time with you all. I just feel better. Can we do that? As relationships around us become troubled and turned upside down, can we be the ones who enter in and help and restore and heal and rebuild? Can we be the kind of people who bring health and wholeness to brokenness and pain? We were struggling, but then I sat down with one of you, and I'm feeling better. I think we'll be okay. As the uncertainty of life stirs up fears and worries, can we be the kind of people who trust that Jesus is in us and with us and will be in this whole situation through us such that it will be okay? And then turn down the anxiety and down the worry and down the fear that so easily ratchets its way back up. Again, going back to that original strange engineering analogy, that great force within the building that just dampens the magnitude of the storms. Because, of course, that's who Jesus is in our lives. And that's who He calls us to be in the lives of others, which is why we need to continue to follow Him, so that we can learn to do what He does, so that we can become more like Him. Let's pray. Lord God, You know how crazy our world can feel, and You know that sometimes it gets even crazier in our perception. But we ask, Lord, that You would be a calming and quieting and restoring force within us, that we would remember that You are in the boat with us, whether the waters are calm or whether we're in the midst of a storm, that we can rely and trust on You better. And as we do, Lord, we pray that we would then become that kind of people that restores order and peace and harmony and calm. That you would change our spirits and make them more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.